Hi everyone, this is Sarah McFarlane from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Lee Stoner and Gabriel Zeef from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. They both joined us for a webinar on their research involving pulse wave velocity in a variety of different applications and the methods that they use to record high quality and repeatable data. Let's jump in. So Lee, this question is for you. This person has asked, if I'm getting started with pulse wave velocity, is there a particular device that you would recommend? That's a a good question. There are a lot of devices available in the market. One of the devices that Gabe showed earlier, the, the Sphygma Core, the Atcor, the Atcor Excel is you know, highly recommended because Atcor is probably the leader in, in, in the field and highly trusted for the quality of their assessments. It, it is partly tonometry based, so some degree of training is required. Another good recommendation, I really like the Vicorder, which is completely oscillometric, requires a low degree of training. Great. Thanks for that. So the next question here is actually for you, Gabe. This question is, you showed that pulse wave velocity changed following an orthostatic challenge. Does this mean that blood pressure needs to be taken into account when measuring pulse wave velocity? Yes, that's a great observation. We do know that blood pressure does impact pulse wave velocity. So with that being the case, we do typically recommend that we include a MAP or mean arterial pressure as a covariate when we are doing our analysis. We also want to be mindful of any medications that could alter blood pressure as well as body position, which could also impact blood pressure as we saw with the example of sitting. So yeah, great question. Great. Thanks for that. We've got another question here. This is not addressed to anyone in particular, so you can both take a stab at it if you'd like. This question is, what is the clinical implication of stiffness in small arteries like microvasculature when compared to stiffness in large arteries like the aorta? Yeah, um, we don't typically look at the small arteries. There, there are devices that we can estimate them, or estimate small artery stiffness, such as wave intensity analysis, which is you know more complicated technique. But of course, those small resistance vessels, the small arterioles, particularly the resistance vessels, are going to regulate blood pressure. So one of the obvious clinical ramifications is an increase in blood pressure. Great. Okay. So the next question here is, what is the gold standard of assessing pulse wave velocity among those available devices that you mentioned? For example, ultrasound, tonometry, or MRI? Okay. Yeah. I was just going to mention, as Lee highlighted, the, the Sphygma Core XL is typically considered, and its use with carotid femoral pulse wave velocity is um, typically considered that gold standard device and measurement path. I think it's a kind of a burgeoning field, our investigation into other path lengths and, and other devices, <laughs> as we kind of allude, alluded to in the presentation, in terms of trying to figure out some novel strategies to get around some of the limitations that this current gold standard does present. 
this is a theoretical kind of physiology-based question. Why does the pulse wave velocity increase when vessel stiffness increases? So if you think about a vessel, normally it's got all the elastic fibers in it that's making it compliant. And as a pressure wave travels through it, that elasticity will slow down the pressure wave. Conversely, now imagine that the artery is a solid tube, like a, a pipe. There's going to be you know, no resistance to that pressure wave and it's just, just going to shoot straight through it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Hopefully that answered your question. The next question here is, could there be a difference in the pulse wave velocity measured <clears throat> with PPG due to the measurement of volume change rather than pressure change? Yes, that's a good point. The, so we actually don't didn't expect the PPG based system to to give us ex exactly um, the same kind of value, or rather, it's the the PPG system is going to result in a slightly different um, measurement because it's going to be on a different scale. So partially because of the reason that you mentioned, or the person asking the the question mentioned given that it is related to these small volume changes rather than pressure per se, and also because the path lengths are not exactly the same in terms of the criterion that we were comparing against. So yes, the value, as we expect, will be slightly different, but the agreement was still moderate to strong in terms of the way in which the measurement responded to that orthostatic, orthostatic challenge. Right. And Gabe, we should also point out there that the measurement is different. I mean, it's faster with the PPG because we, we, we're measuring from ECG and we're taking the R wave, which is not the start of the ventricular pressure wave. So, and there's no easy way of making adjustments for that. So that is going to give us a slightly different measurement as well. Okay. Because that PPG measurement is normalized to the R peak in the ECG. Yeah. We're going from the R peak to the foot of the flow wave rather than from a foot of a flow wave to a foot of a flow wave. Right. So extra source of variability in there. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Cool. Okay, we have another question here. We've got tons of questions. Keep them coming, guys. They're fantastic. So this person has asked, what effect does acute and chronic exercise have on pulse wave velocity? That's a good question. So <clears throat> the, one of the major reasons that we are interested in pulse wave velocity is that we use it as kind of a biomarker of vascular aging. So with age, it does increase naturally. That is expected, and that's what you know, we showed from our previous review and we see this in children and adults. Now, there isn't like a natural physiological rate of aging, but that rate of aging increases through exposure to adverse environmental factors. You know, if people eat poor diets, they don't get enough physical activity, etc. The slope of that increase over time gets faster. So folks get a greater increase and pulse wave velocity per year. With exercise, it's going to maintain the health of the, the blood vessel. And one of the primary ways that it does this is direct. Exercise creates great hemodynamic stresses on the, on the blood vessel, particularly in shear stress and hopefully laminar shear stress on the, on the blood vessel. And this is the stimulus that the blood vessel needs to maintain an, 
improve its health. So over time, you can decrease pulse wave velocity with chronic exercise. Acutely, it depends where in the body you are looking at. So in the aorta, it's, it's going to go down straight after exercise because you've just whooshed all of that blood through the aorta. And with that, you know, shear stress increases and the filial function improves. And as a result, stiffness goes down. In the legs, though, um, because there's a lot more blood going down there and we want to get it back towards the heart, you may actually see an increase in stiffness due to input from the autonomic nervous system. That is, unless people have some kind of chronic um, condition that's affecting their autonomic system. So, for example, in stroke patients, after exercise, stiffness goes down and stays down which is a bad thing because it's enabling all the blood to pull in the legs and not get back to the heart and therefore not get back to the brain. Yeah, so you kind of want a little bit of stiffness. I would, just, I would just add, can I just add one more thing on top of that, Sarah? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I would just add that I think the, the acute exercise scenario is a great example of a situation in which we really want to consider when and how we would want to uh, measure pulse wave velocity if we're still in such an acute um, post-exercise phase that we still have a lot of sympathetic nervous system activation and we're still riding an elevated blood pressure, well, that's going to affect our arterial stiffness measure. So thinking about, okay, we do want to look at the acute effects of exercise, but how soon after that exercise bout do we want to measure stiffness? So just another good example of those methodological considerations and study design mm -hmm. considerations. Yeah, and related to that point, Gabe, you, we would include mean arterial pressure as a time-variant covariate because we want to see change in stiffness, not change in blood pressure. So we're going to need to factor out the blood pressure component. Lots of things to consider, and thanks so much for all of your uh, insights on that. I know people have lots of questions for you guys, and they're looking to you guys as the pros, so it's really great. We've got another question here. This question is, uh, which position could be the ideal position to measure pulse wave velocity in pregnant women? Yeah, um, <laughs> that one's a trickier one. And we are doing pregnancy studies at the moment. And part of this is going to be dependent on the device that you use, because ideally you'd have them laying on their side. And if you think about pregnancy, and all that weight around their stomach is going to push down on the aorta, not to mention, you know, collapse the vein, but that's going to influence your measurement. So you can do that with the sphygma core, which is what we're using for a study right now. If you're using the, like, the vicorder, with the vicorder, because you're using oscillometry around the neck, it sounds bad, but just as a little balloon going around the neck to pick up the pulse, but it's being influenced by the vein and you can get venous backflow. So you need to slightly tilt the body forward. And you can't do that if someone is laying down on, on their side. Okay. So something to think about for pregnancy studies. Awesome. Okay. We have another question here. This question is, does the obesity paradox have an impact on pulse wave velocity? Yes, it does. And sorry, Gabe, I'm answering here because this is, part of the reviews that Michelle, Anna and I have done. With cross-sectional studies, we see a decrease 
with the rate of obesity, but that's cross-sectionally. But we don't see the same longitudinally. Longitudinally, pulse wave velocity will go down as expected. So those kind of conflicting foundings for the cross-sectional studies may be explained by a number of factors. One may be, you know, we're just not able to get as good measurements on the obese folks, particularly you do antonometry and, and, and it's tough to plant the vessel well, but also there's changes in the hemodynamics, including an elevated heart rate, which may confound the measurement that we get in as well as some blood volume shifts. Yeah. So that is an area that definitely warrants more attention and not fully understood, but some potential explanations that you know, we should explore further. Mm-hmm. Great. We've got another question here about different populations. So I'll ask that one now. Does altitude or ethnicity have effects on pulse wave velocity? That, that's a good question. I haven't, I haven't done much work in, in the area of altitude. However, in terms of um, ethnicity, we do know there's, we see the same kind of pattern of disparity in terms of white versus black or white versus um, non-white populations that we see in other health outcomes like or other health indices like blood pressure or um, diabetes. So we, we do know that there's you know an elevation in some of these stiffness measures in uh, minority populations, which as we can might imagine, may not be due to innate physiological differences per se between race, but could also be very much impacted by sociocultural factors that um, are impacting health determinants, behavioral determinants, etc. Yeah, and, okay. and we should say not we can't lump all minorities there. So, for instance, we know African Americans have a much greater risk of cardiovascular disease than do their white counterparts. So, we would expect higher post-wave velocity and a colleague of mine, Michelle Meyer, is just adding post-wave velocity to the Jackson Heart Study. So in sometime in the next couple of years, there'll be some useful data. But now if we look at um, Latinos, is the a paradox. So they have many risk factors, but not as high rates of the cardiovascular disease. And that's not fully understood. My same colleague, Michelle Meyer, is adding to post-wave velocity measurements to HL as well, the, the Hispanic longitudinal studies so to, to track that over time in that population as well. Cool. That's going to be some awesome data, I think. Our next question here, is there any relationship between local pulse wave velocity and the gold standard of carotid femoral pulse wave velocity. So I'm assuming this means like local to mm-hmm. an organ, for example, if you wanted to do main like trunk aorta to, for example, a renal artery or something like that. I'll let Gabe comment on this because he's done a bunch of, had a paper last year on local pulse wave velocity estimates. Yeah, so the local estimates are related to the segmental pulse wave velocity, but as the name describes, they are estimates. In other words, we're not actually measuring a velocity because we're not looking at Uh, distance and time per se, we're looking at changes in pressure relative to changes in diameter. So we found that similar to segmental pulse wave velocity, local estimations of pulse wave velocity are also pressure dependent. And there is work, albeit less work than 
two-point or segmental pulse wave velocity, but there is work showing that these local estimates do have some clinical implications similar to two-point pulse wave velocity as well. So there, there is this some capacity for clinical clinical use and meaning, but more work does need to be done in this area. Yeah, I mean, of these, the like clinically, the carotid is most useful and is, a, is very highly related to stroke risk. Okay, great. So awesome. And we've got another question here about pulse wave velocity in the brain. So this person has said, I was interested in the cerebral pulse wave velocity measurements that you mentioned during the presentation. Is this done just using ECG and transcranial Doppler or are there other methods that are used? Not like right now, and there's very little that's been done with TCD. The, the only other stuff that I know of is by, uh, I think he's a Japanese guy who's done a couple of papers on it. But I, I guess technically it's possible for MRI, but I haven't seen any. This is, this is an area that definitely warrants further attention, not least because these um, pulsatile hemodynamic related to brain health, like in, in, including Alzheimer's. You know, we know other measures of stiffness around the body, not ones directly in the brain that are associated with brain health. So it is a, it is a really exciting area. And my, my colleagues and I actually have a, a special on this topic in Frontiers in Cardiovascular Medicine at the moment, looking at hemodynamics and brain health. So we're asking for submissions to the special right now. So that's a plug. <laughs> <laughs> okay, awesome. Yeah. Do you need to replicate measurements of the distance length to determine variability? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think as Gabe pointed out, it's normally the major source of error for these measurements. The most important recommendation is not to use a tape measure because, um, you know, it's going to be influenced by body contours. You need something that's going to overcome that. So what we would normally do is make sure very precisely we've identified the spots that we're detecting the pulse at and then we've adapted one of those board compasses that Gabe showed and we'll look at the, the measurement and then we take it across to a, a height meter on the wall to look at the distance and then we'll repeat it and if the next one is the same we'll keep it if not we'll measure again but those measurements will also be recorded so that if we have a repeat visit that will put it in exactly the same spot next time. So we'll use those measurements and we'll take pictures as well just to make sure we can replicate. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe.